Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I'm really happy to welcome a co-founder and core contributor to the Aragon Network and Aragon Association, Luis Quende. Aragon gives the internet communities unprecedented power to organize around shared values and resources and ultimately create DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. And the promise of Aragon is to allow that to happen in five minutes. We've tested it. It's true. So uh, welcome on the show, Luis. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you describe yourself as a free software lover and hacker. I guess free software is a reference to the free software movement of Richard Stallman, yep. uh, rather than necessarily what people misunderstand it as, you know, championing something that doesn't necessarily cost anything. So I don't know if you just want to explain that first in terms of the freedom movement, what that means. Yeah, so I got into free software, uh, which is, I guess, like more commonly referred to open source these days, although the ethos was a bit different. But I got into that when I was 12 because of like the power that software gives you. I come from a humble family where like a bunch of the things I wanted to do or explore or like my curiosity would actually cost money and would actually need like, you know, hardware or like labs or stuff like that. And with software, you don't need any of that. You can like just grab a laptop and then that's all the investment you need. There's open source, you can just grab it, you can play with it, you can create awesome stuff. And so for me, that was mind blowing that you could just grab those things for free and contribute. And then if you make something useful, then contribute back. And that movement's been going since the 80s. And, and the free part is really a reference to freedom to use, share um, and modify. And there's a lot of kind of copyright licensing that's come out of that that's enabled the open source movement, as you say. So you are Forbes 30 under 30, MIT TR35, which I assume is somehow linked to that as well. You were named as best programmer in Europe under 18 by Hack Forward been an advisor to the vice president of the European Commission on technology and a number of other things. And you are a serial entrepreneur, despite your relative age. I believe it's six startups and counting, uh, if you were class arrogant as a startup. Most of them failed, but yeah. <laughs> that's okay. That's, 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 that, they're the odds that we go into, right, as, as, as founders. So the reason why I wanted you on the show was because I think the work that you're doing and Aragon is incredibly important over the last decade. These supranational open protocols have emerged and they've gone on to hold billions of dollars worth of assets and value. And hopefully, at least the promise is that over time, they will begin handling greater economic load. So how they're governed is increasingly important. Equally, as regulators try to restrict innovation in some places or place kind of false or fairly ambiguous burdens of decentralization on projects, how they are governed is bringing increasing levels of scrutiny. I think if you ask most people in the industry or at least that are entering the industry around ours, everybody acknowledges that they hold the most promise, but they probably bring the most skepticism. I think many people feel they're too far away, they're somehow sci-fi, perhaps they just can't 
imagine a different system. And perhaps they, they also uh, label these things as fairly utopic. But you guys are not only building a stack for other people to create DAOs, but you're effectively dog fooding. You know, you are doing what you preach in terms of how you run Aragon and the network. So as a quick summary to your background, as I said, you, uh, like me, actually, as far as I can understand, learned at the School of Life. So I, I could see that you didn't necessarily yep. go to a, a university. I actually dropped out within the first couple of weeks. So I think all, all the best people um, have, have that start. And you, you started out developing you founded a few startups, I think it was Holler Labs in 2011, which was trying to do the first distributed desktop. Around 2008, 2013, Asterix, which was a, a Linux distribution pioneer using facial login. Again, uh, Linux and this kind of connection to open source is something pretty consistent in your background. And then you've done other things like work within loyalty cards with Cardwe. You worked at Telefonica for a while and uh, something called Unpatent, which is a crowdfunding platform. So again, I guess relevant to what you ended up doing with, with Aragon. Um, uh, I think in particular that was looking at bad patents. So in 2018, um, you founded, um, sorry, 2016, you founded Aragon. And during that time, you went on to set up Aragon 1. I believe it's, it's kind of changed now. And then something called Stampery. Before we go into, I guess, exactly what Aragon is and the kind of work that you're doing there. Could you just explain the difference between Aragon, the network and the foundation, and then the other associated Aragon organizations such as Aragon One? Yeah, for sure. So in terms of decentralized networks and projects, they are very different to startups where you just have one entity and that's it. So for example, like in 2017, when we did the token sale for Aragon, we needed some entity that actually would manage the funds, right? Because you have this chicken and egg problem where you cannot make DAOs happen if you don't have funding and hire people. And so, but there were no DAOs back then. So we couldn't just create a DAO and that's it. So we did that. That is a model that has been like more kind of like widespread around crypto networks. Like you create a legal entity and then the legal entity funds the protocol until it is sufficiently decentralized. And so that's what we're doing. The idea of having the Aragon Association, which is kind of the legal steward of the project, was that that one was giving grants, was uh, funding development, and is a non-profit in Switzerland. But then there is also like development teams. And so these development teams are basically teams which get funded by the association to develop software via grants. And so you have like Aragon One, which is one of them. There are other communities, such as for example, OneHive, which is a DAO itself running on Aragon, which also receives grants. But there's this kind of like ecosystem where there is no single entity that basically controls or like develops the network. Great. And so I guess there are several instances of how that technology stack can be developed and taken to market. I guess that in theory, that makes it somewhat more resilient. So uh, as I was kind of preparing for our interview, uh, I normally always look at somebody's Twitter stream to see what's going on in, in their mind at, at the latest moment. And you know, clearly, I, I like these podcasts to be fairly timeless, but there's a lot going on right now in the world which it clearly uh, has um, has your attention and I think the Aragon project speaks to. So you were recently expressing your disappointment that Web3 is not yet ready for prime time generally and perhaps when its moment has come, when many systems are collapsing or seeming to collapse around us, there's this great opportunity for us to say, hey, look at this alternative system and we're not quite yet ready. The way that you kind of articulated that or broke that down was that when you were building 
Aragon, you thought by 2018, scaling would be solved, like clients would be widespread and privacy tech would be everywhere. It would have been mainstreamed already. How critical, I mean, there's, there's many reasons why that, that hasn't happened. And of course, this is the purpose of the podcast to explore these things. But specific to DAOs, how critical do you think the success of DAOs are to Web3's ability to mobilize and coordinate? I think that is the important part for me. I mean, that is why going to DAOs in the first place, right? But like, if you look at the different waves of the internet, you have Web1 and the first web uh, in the like uh, 90s, 80s, it was more about being able to use publish stuff on the internet, like basically blocks. And that was the thing that kind of like got widespread very quickly. Then like there was Web2, social media. So you have like not only posting and sharing, but also discussing on those topics that were posting, posted or shared. And then now it's Web3 and Web3 actually allows you to take action. So there is a lot of things there, uh, a lot of like discussions that are going on, a lot of great ideas out there, but none of them, uh, or, or actually some of them happen, but most of them actually don't even have a real life impact. And so when, with Web3, we can actually take that social capital and make it meet financial capital. And so that combination is actually which like the things that make the world change, right? And that's the thing that I'm really excited about. And you know, if I kind of look at a lot of the presentations that you do and, and panels and talks or uh, just even things you write, the word freedom comes up a lot. And again, I think you know, referenced in the context of software, but I think more generally, freedom seems to be a, a kind of a driving part of your personal mission, at least. So it'd be good to understand that a little bit more. So as, as, I, as I've seen you describe it, again, in the context of DAOs, there is this, there is this opportunity where we now have a, in your words, universal cross-border, non-violent collaborative effort to fight for our freedom. And that this has the potential to be unstoppable because it's permissionless, I presume, as, as an innovation. And, you know, you kind of reference the idea that DAOs will not only begin to potentially replace corporations, but also, you know, the, the state itself. So it would be good to understand how you see the role of DAOs in that context as kind of a, a counterbalance to surveillance capitalism and the, the current paradigm. Yeah, I think DAOs ultimately are communities. And so if you look at communities, they give a, a bunch of things to people, but the most important one, I think, is belonging. So right now you're seeing this very interesting trend where more and more people are feeling that they belong less to these macro kind of like monster communities that are nation states and they start belonging more to these like smaller communities on the internet. And so those communities can be anything, it can be a theorem community, it can be a subreddit which posts uh, like cute puppy memes, like whatever, a community can be anything. But this feeling of belonging is very real. And so I, I think we could really use that feeling more right now. I think we are losing hope as like humankind. I think people are, and you can see this in culture, like compared to like, you know, culture back in, in the 80s and stuff like that, that, that idealism is hardly preserved because there isn't a common vision of where the world is going. And so traditional institutions are just failing us. And that is creating this kind of a spiral of just lack of optimism and lack of hope. And I think the way we take it back is finding belonging via communities again. I know you've talked about the idea that if you look at the startups of, of Web2 and those that have kind of gone, gone to dominate the web that have come out of Silicon Valley, they're only really trying to solve for first world problems. I'm assuming you're Spanish. Do you think it's 
a coincidence that an alternative to that paradigm is not coming out of the US, it's coming out of Europe. And in particular, do you think there's anything about the kind of Spanish psyche and Spanish culture that would feed into this? Because I know, you know, Spanish has a very rich history around cooperatism and alternative models of organization. And um, Yeah, actually, the, the name Aragon came from this kind of like province that there is in Spain called Aragon which actually was a place where there was the like most lengthy, like sustained anarchism in the world that has happened, I think, during six years in like the 30s. And so that is extremely interesting. And like I, I read a bunch about how people were coordinating without this kind of like central manager. And that worked for a few years. Then, of course, like fascism killed it, such as many other great things in, in the world. But yeah, I totally think that we can come back to that. And we have like amazing tools that enable us now to coordinate millions of people and not like the hundred people that they were coordinating before in, in Spain in that province. So I think that is very powerful. And one of the reasons that actually triggered us to create Aragon is that we were living in the US and trying to raise money for our previous startup in 2016. And then Donald Trump won the elections. And I remember that night very vividly. Like I was, um, I think I was drinking either a gin tonic or like Bailey's or something like that. I was just like, <laughs> like, like looking at the TV and being like, what the fuck is going on? This is the end of like democracy as we know it. So we need alternatives. It's probably at this point, it will be useful for the audience to explain at a high level, what is a DAO? Uh, as I said, some of the audience are, you know, very deep into the space, but we are trying to onboard new people and it's probably the one that sounds the most intimidating but actually is is relatively simple yeah so DAO uh, means decentralized autonomous organization and so basically what it means is that it is an entity that has no central leadership or management and that it is autonomous in the sense that it is able to incentivize others to make its mission happen and then it's an organization in the sense that like there are certain rules and it is not use chaos. There's like some organization in there. So basically for me, the main characteristics that DAO has is that they are very good at attracting and incentivizing contributors. They are very good at also um, managing and pulling funds from anywhere in the world. And they also um, very good in governing those funds. So at the end, how I like to look at it is that Bitcoin enables permissionless like money. And DAOs enable permissions governance um, and organization. So I know some people have said uh, Bitcoin was a form of DAO, but clearly you see a yeah. kind of dis a distinct separation in terms of the, the evolution of what what they've what they've become. But it, it would be useful uh, to to do kind of a, a quick history of DAOs as you see. I think the most famous DAO in everybody's minds that managed to cut through into mainstream media, sadly, was the DAO, where lots of money got raised and then subsequently kind of frozen and, and hacked. Um, but obviously, the, the kind of concept of a DAO has been around for longer than that. And you could argue it's been one of the main missions of certainly the Ethereum community for some time. Yeah, exactly. I think if you look back at like 2014 and stuff like that, you have like a bunch of posts about um, almost sci-fi posts about DAOs being almost the main thing that actually like drove Ethereum into existence. I think finally enough, Ethereum is way more focused right now on finance than on social interactions. It is almost impossible to like do social interactions like the ones you have in DAOs on Ethereum today because like it's just so extremely costly. Like I probably spent $10 today just voting on stuff. And so the DAO hack happened, I think, 
At that point, a lot of people started to shy away from the mission of a DAO. You didn't. So I forget the kind of time difference between that and then when you would have founded Aragon. But was it in response or reaction to that in a way that you wanted to, to see it done effectively and you felt that it had to happen now rather than in 10 years? I think it was like a few months of difference. So like I think that all hack happened in like summer or spring 2016. And then we started Aragon in October or November 2016. And it wasn't really in response to that specific issue. I was very surprised though that like no one was working on it. Like people were like, oh, the DAO is dead and therefore DAOs are dead. And I was like, well, this is one implementation that failed, but like that doesn't mean that the whole concept is flawed forever. The other thing that I was thinking is that this is gonna take like a decade to be a thing. And so we gotta start early. And we were like extremely early, like Aragon, you know, 2016, we raised in 2017. And, and still we are a long way and everything is extremely early, but you gotta start somewhere. And I liked how, I think I saw you somewhere say that the evolution of DAOs in the context of the overall journey of crypto is really in response to this idea of forking, the idea that at a certain point, networks can fork with a 51% attack, depending on how consensus is structured. That then makes them inherently fragile. And so there needed to be a way uh, of achieving community dispute resolution. I believe with Aragon now, you're at roughly a one month period of dispute resolution, which seems pretty good in the context of resolving any disputes. And I know you've kind of compared that to trying to get your deposit back from a landlord, which took over a year. Could you explain the key components to the Aragon stack or kind of a, you know, generally a DAO technology in a DAO stack? Yeah, sure thing. So basically DAOs are smart contracts. And so uh, they are like code contracts that run on a blockchain, for example, Ethereum. And so we built this architecture of like very flexible smart contracts that you can use to basically create your own DAO, like you have Lego bricks. So like you have Lego bricks, you put them together and you create like whatever kind of structure you want. Um, because like no community is, is equal to the other. And so they, they kind of like need this flexibility. And then we're also working on a couple other things. We're working on the Aragon court. And so Aragon court is this dispute resolution mechanism that enables for DAOs to do much more than smart contracts. So you think about like the daily lives and interacting with organizations, uh, you have these like very flexible legal agreements in which you can basically write anything that you can write in like English language, for example. So we're taking that to, to DAOs. So you will be able to basically write like a manifest for your organization and write simple rules. I don't think we need like super complex kind of like legalist rules yet for DAOs, but you can write simple stuff like you may not fund terrorism with this DAOs money, right? It's crazy that like, DAOs today don't really have that protection because like code is law comes both ways for good things and for bad things. So if you have this kind of layer of protection where you can be like, hey, this is not in, la, in our bylaws, this is not in our manifesto, I'm going to raise a dispute. You can raise a dispute and the action can get paused. The other thing that we're building is Aragon Chain. And so Aragon Chain is a blockchain that is very optimized for social interactions and DAO interactions. Because I think Ethereum is great for many use cases. Like if you want to hold millions of dollars of value, Ethereum is probably the right choice because it's so secure. But you have to pay for security, right? So like the way I was comparing it is that Ethereum is like Manhattan and then you have like these suburbs which are like smaller chains. So, but yeah, it's a bit of the like Aragon style. You have like the kind of generic DAO like contracts and interfaces and then you have Aragon court and then you have Aragon chain. 
So you talk about Aragon, the Aragon network anyway, as the first digital jurisdiction. And as you say, you can have these digital bylaws with whatever level of detail that you want, whatever whatever level of nuance you want. I know a lot of work's being done in what's called the Lao space, which I guess is a legal autonomous organization. And the thinking around that is that there needs to be legal wrappers for DAOs. And that could be in any number of forms. It could be a cooperative, actually, one of them that's being discussed, or it could be other forms of like non-profit organizations. The intention there i'm assuming is a you might need to or it might be desirable to protect participants from the liability of some of the activities of a dow and then presumably the second piece is that some people believe that it's a spectrum and perhaps not everything needs to be resolved on chain in some cases code is not law so something might be executed in code but there could be a claim after that execution but by somebody what what's your perspective on that space is for you that ideal outcome that everything happens on chain or you know do you look to kind of cater to the a wider spectrum yeah i think blockchain server is low computers so i think if we can take everything we can out of the chain then it's better so actually i would like for most things to happen on chain i think if you look at it like the very 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 main things that need to happen on chain are binding actions when it comes to fund management because like the funds need to be there and there isn't like any central like person who should be able to use withdraw them right so i think fund management needs to stay there a bunch of other things even voting you can probably take off chain with like multiple scalability mechanisms uh, and so yeah i think there are a lot of ways that we can take things off chain and there's also the aspect of like the governance itself like I used to think that governance should happen on-chain and that software was the most important thing in the stack. But actually, we have figured out that communities have a very important part of the stack, which is social, right? And so there's a lot of like off-chain interactions that happen that the software has to facilitate, the software has to kind of like, you know, fade in the background because those are the important things. Yeah, we had um, Peter Pan of Meta Cartel on the podcast recently, and he was very much advocating for the idea of the meat activity that happens around the DAO is often the kind of glue and the bond. So one of the things that you mentioned in there is this this concept of a manifesto or a manifesto-based organization. And I know you've spoken about that in the context of serving more long-term goals that are aligned perhaps with all stakeholders rather than just shareholder supremacy in the context of a, of a corporation. And the idea that if Bitcoin, say, had a manifesto, if Satoshi had created a manifesto, then there would be less ambiguity at these inflection points, which cause the potential for forking when people uh, get lost in the ambiguity, it becomes fractious. So I know at Aragon, you have a manifesto. Could you talk us through the things that you think are important for the MetaDAO effectively? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think the, the manifesto was a, an interesting exercise because we, like a bunch of people, were sitting in one room and we're like, well, we want to give something to the community that they can like iterate on, but it needs to be something that is both generic enough so that people can like kind of relate to it but it's also specific enough so that when there is a problem you can go to it and you can like kind of see the ranking of the things that you value as a community and then 
make decisions. So I think the most important part of this manifesto is actually like the order. What is your very like number one thing that you wouldn't compromise? Where's the second one? Where's the third one? And once you rank these values, it can be like as simple as like values. And so like, for example, in the crypto community, there are communities that put decentralization above everything else. And others put, for example, user acquisition, right? And so there are different trade-offs, but I think having them clear early on is a huge advantage. And what's that sequence at Aragon? What is one, two, and three? So basically we have like four main things. If you look at them, like most of them are kind of broadly encoded in the whole kind of like crypto sphere. But like, for example, in, in the case here, you know, the first one is self-sovereignty. So that is pretty important, like giving people either voice or exit. And then obviously like something where you create collaboration mechanisms where you cannot exercise violence, kind of like peaceful mechanisms. Then there is the, um, the decentralization one. Like funnily enough, like we rank decentralization, like I think third. Uh, so it's like not even like first one, but basically like decentralizing power. And so that is, that is very important. But if you look at this, like self-sovereignty, so like users and even then the voice and exit is ranked even before like actual decentralization of power. And then you have like creation of long-term value versus short-term profit. And then finally, uh, the systems being inclusive. And so that is more about not inclusive in the sense that anyone can participate, but also inclusive in the sense that they need to be usable. And that's the one, one thing that I'm actually kind of scared about in the crypto system right now. Things are not usable by real people. And so uh, therefore, they are not inclusive. So yeah, that's a bit of a rundown of the values that we have. Right. Yeah. As you say, I think you know several of those would be high priorities on my list for, for the space generally. So I know a, a big kind of topic as stacks maturing, you're starting to get more participation. The last stat I heard was you had 600 organizations using the Aragon network in some way. I don't know if that's gone up, gone up or down recently. Yeah. And that you have 7% participation from token holders and holders uh, in terms of how they participate using those tokens in the network, which is how they effectively uh, vote. Could you talk us through some of the thinking around how you increase levels of, of participation? One thing that we realize as well is that the important thing about participation is not actually the amount of people that participate, but the outcome of the decisions. So I think that is a very, very, very main thing to... Sometimes in democracy, we like kind of like get abstracted um, around what is the the end and what is the means and like voting is just a mean to an to an end and the end is good decisions right and so once you look at that then you think well maybe the system needs more participation because of security because like if you have low participation then the system can easily be hacked um, or attacked in different ways i think in terms of increasing participation the best way is to make voting invisible and make it as easy as like clicking a like button. And so that's something that we're like very excited about. We're working on this library called Aragon Connect that will enable developers to make it that easy. And I'm so looking forward to that. There's also like this um, implementation that a team called Abridge did where they put an Aragon DAO on Telegram. So you can basically vote by clicking a, a like button. And that for me is how it should be. It should be used very easy. And I know you've mentioned that there could be a threshold to the size of a DAO for its effectiveness. And so there was a preference towards smaller DAOs with more specific missions rather than larger and more generalized. And this potential for sub-DAOs, how are you seeing that play out in the Aragon world, I guess, as this kind of 
sandbox where we're testing not just the technology, but also the social principles. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Dunbar's number, which is uh, like the amount of people that we can have empathy or any kind of relationship with. And I really like that number. I think in general that is true for communities. So I think having communities that are like, you know, big enough that you can achieve certain scale, but also small enough that you maintain empathy, it's a huge value add. Like if you look at nation states, I think one of the reasons they are falling apart is because it is hard to empathize with like your fellow inhabitant number 49 million one hundred, right? Like it's just very hard. And so I think having these smaller systems, which are federated, is going to be a, a huge thing. Also in terms of like technicality and how ready are kind of the incentive mechanisms and the DAOs itself. Right now, DAOs are ready for basically be used as clubs, like very small numbers of people interacting. And I think we are like, those primitives are evolving. And so we'll be able to like have DAOs that have like a, a thousand members and then 10,000. And then we can probably have a DAO that is just kind of, I don't know, like anti-climate change um, DAO and you can onboard like billions of people. But I think that is still kind of far away. So Dunbar's number is 130 or 140 friends? I can't remember now. I think Dunbar is like 130. Yeah. That's, that's or 150, right. I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. So it'd be interesting to see, um, obviously, once you have more data from what's going on in Aragon, if that's a truism across, you know, the effectiveness of DAOs. I know you've also mentioned that it's also about... Of course, this is, I guess, mission specific, but the idea of having a higher barrier to entry um, gives people, I guess, to use Taleb's word, skin in the game. So like Moloch Dow obviously had a very high threshold for you to participate and presumably that led to a higher level of uh, participation. Do you think that there's some universal truths like, like the Dunbar's number, or do you think it's going to be highly specific to the mission of the Dow and all these variables around barrier to entry, cost to entry and stuff like that. There is always like some primitives that you can trace in like kind of the human brain and psychology. But I think that generally it will very much depend on the DAO and the mission. So like if you look at Moloch, for example, Moloch needed to have a very high barrier to entry because you want a number of people that are very interested in how to screen the game into the Ethereum ecosystem, which is a highly specialized ecosystem. I think as we move to DAOs that are more and more clo like closer to the mainstream, we will see that those barriers of entry kind of go down just because otherwise it's going to be very hard to onboard people. So um, I'm actually a huge fan and believer of open DAOs. We haven't seen them in the wild yet. I think there may be like a couple um, like out there, but DAOs where you can just come in, contribute, be rewarded and go out if you want. I think that is uh, for me like the kind of like mind blowing model. I guess, how do you then marry that with the, the kind of free software initiative? So you're saying at the beginning, this idea that the great thing about software for you is that you could come from humble beginnings and, and participate in the internet. I guess now, you know, the promise with crypto has always been that people can begin to participate in a new economic system. They still need something to play, but the barrier could be as low as you know a fraction of a Bitcoin or equivalent. You know, crypto right now could arguably be said to be an extreme form of capitalism in a way. How do you see it coming at the space from a slightly different perspective uh, with, with where the reality of DeFi and, and everything is today? I think it is very important that we think about ways that people can earn crypto. Because, I mean, you can accumulate wealth via capital increasing in value or via work. And so I think right now 
we are very much we started very much on the other spectrum like with bitcoin being a store um a store of value but i think we need to work towards like making people earn and right now it's like the perfect time because unemployment is through the roof so if we are able to actually offer these people an alternative that provides them um with some rewards and you know some capital i think that would be ideal the problem though and something that i'm very like disillusioned about is that we are so much into our bubble and like creating financial derivatives of other financial derivatives of other financial derivatives that we like just don't have the capacity to like think about how to actually reach mainstream audience and that's the audience that like needs it right now and that's why i'm frustrated because like crypto should be ready now to onboard millions of people who don't have a job and we're not there yet yeah and that's a really good segue into a trend that I'm kind of watching slightly to distance. I think it's largely because of age or because I'm not so heavily into say the gaming space, but it feels like there is definitely a generation that are bringing about kind of virtual ways of play and work kind of almost as the same thing. And it feels like if there's going to be a gateway for millions of users, billions of users into crypto and in particular DAOs, it could most likely come from gaming and perhaps a slightly younger generation. And so we're starting to see a lot of this kind of merging of culture with rage quits and, and various other kind of terminology and language similarities. How do you see, how do you see this merging of gaming and, and, and DAOs? And is that relevant to Aragon and your network now? I think that is super interesting because you can have like these DAOs which allow you to earn money while sort of playing because if we think about it like work and play are kind of like very intermingled in a way in the sense that like you have uh, some rules incentives and then like you have different levels and then you can earn things and so in the gaming world you can earn like you know maybe some coins that may or may not have value in work you earn coins that hopefully have value <laughs> but it is pretty much the the same kind of like a structure right and so we have seen more and more how these DAOs gamify the process of working which i think on one hand is very interesting on the other hand is kind of dangerous as well because when those things get too much kind of like in the way of each other you may end up having weird psychological issues where you feel that you, you don't feel that we are that you're playing nor working which is something that maybe we don't want in a world so full of like kind of inputs and like all of these things that are going on in our heads with a lot of this media kind of just and inputs everywhere um, going on so i don't know i have like mixed feelings about it and is gamification the, the the idea of gamification does that feed into the product development at, at Aragon? Are you thinking about how to coming back to that participation, you know, increase levels of engagement through gamification of using something like Aragon? Yeah, the way we're looking at it, we have always been like extremely respectful of our users. And so like not trying to, obviously not trying to sell their data, obviously not trying to like spy them, obviously not trying to treat them kind of like, like rabbits. And I feel that eventually social platforms actually treat people that way where they have like, you know, kind of like a, like the carrot and the stick and they like try to make you play their games, so to say, until you basically don't have more dopamine to release. And the way I'm trying to look at it is actually interesting. Like I think gamification can be can be an interesting force, but there is actually a force that is actually um, even stronger, and that is belonging. And so, 
if you make people connect to their communities and belong to their communities via your product, I think you are going to get way better kind of long-term engagement rather than just releasing dopamine hits via nice buttons or animations or just kind of like people liking each other's Instagram stories or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that then comes back to your manifesto, right? Which is the first one is the user sovereignty. And so yeah. um, I guess that then is your North Star in terms of, of how you roll out the product. Well, look, our time's up. It's been fascinating talking with you, Luis. Thanks for your time. As I said, I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing. Our team at Outlier Ventures have and do use Aragon. And it, it is as easy as you say. Of course, it's still nascent. You're always very clear to say it's experimental, but uh, it, it's certainly easier to use than uh, than DAOs were, you know, even six months, 12 months ago. So thanks for coming on the show and, and good luck with everything. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jamie. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 